I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. This week, not holding my microphone, uh, a proper stand. <laughs> Everything's looking good. Technically speaking, this is perfect. Great work. Um, I uh, am glad that you started it out. I think we will still potentially have some animal interruptions, whether it's your dog or my cat or my other cat. But I think that's actually going to be in the spirit of this episode. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, that's right. <laughs> that's right, folks. We're talking about um, not St. Francis, but Pope Francis and uh, Laudato Si. So this week we're on high alert over here at the Magnificast. We, <laughs> we've got the... Uh, the the meter it's it's reading red we're um all hands on deck we're just we're waiting we're counting down the moments counting the breaths um until pope francis's follow-up to laudato c drops later this week on october 4th since we are on so high alert for this particular <laughs> papal encyclical uh we thought it'd be a it'd be a, a worthwhile endeavor to take a look at laudato c and make sure that we are like on our a game for when the sequel drops um <laughs> we'll you know we'll know all the inside references uh we'll, we'll we'll have it all kind of covered you thought it was a laudato single but guess what there's a laudato sequel <laughs> to laudato to furious um we're talking about laudato, laudato the sequel <laughs> oh my god <laughs> we're talking about laudato c1 <laughs> this week but next week we're gonna talk about uh laudato c2 and uh we're really gonna get into uh whatever he drops on us i'm super excited about it honestly this is so stupid it's such a stupid thing to get really excited about a papal encyclical but i guess this is like my whole life and um uh, i should just kind of embrace that enjoy your symptom as the con might tell me and i guess i will do do my best <laughs> to do that that's right you know uh you're not the only one excited in the catholic um development world and many other Catholic conversations, media and everything else. Um, it's all over the place. I've gotten so many emails from different bizarre parts of my life over the many years of people being like, did you know it's coming out October 4th? Do you want to have a meeting on October 6th to talk about it and like Absolutely see what it not. means? And like, yeah, I mean, I'm going to do it. I'm here for it. Um, uh, also, uh, the one thing I can't wait for is there's like a specific kind of Catholic nerd that is really excited about the nuances of papal documents. Like, for example, Matt, a great point of order. Um, it is, in fact, not an encyclical coming out. Um, oh Laudate Deum, as it's called. It will be an apostolic exhortation. Such an important thing. And I just wanted to save you here on the pod, because when you do tweet that it's an encyclical, you'll have so many nerds being like, no, it isn't. The difference is that it's just a shorter kind of thing. Um, the difference is something I honestly can't tell you right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll have to figure out wow. in the next week. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll all find out together. I think <laughs> we'll learn firsthand through experience. Um, <laughs> while we can barely contain our excitement over here, I know that I'm on the edge of my seat waiting for this great thing to drop. Um, we're going to do our best to focus on revisiting some of the big ideas in, in Laudato C and talk about maybe where things have moved since. Um, I think that there's two things we want to focus on in particular, maybe three. I don't It's hard to say until we actually do it. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, well, first we want, we want to talk about uh, how Francis kind of sets up the problem of climate change as um, not just like a material problem, but also a spiritual problem. That's kind of a, an interesting idea that I think you see people in liberation theology do, but you also see 
Francis do himself, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, then we're going to also focus on parts of the text that deal with dependency theory and then also um, some ideas around growth. Um, in 2015, uh, degrowth did exist as a movement, but definitely not as it does today. So I guess it's just kind of interesting to read, um, you know, some of his thoughts on growth in light of the degrowth movement. And um, I don't know, you can mark some distance that way, I guess. Uh, kind of a, a fun <laughs> a fun way through um, this revisitation of the great uh, encyclical <laughs> that we all know and love. That's right. And I think it, it's actually going to be interesting to to track what some of those changes are, both between the documents, but also just the context in which they're written. Like you said, Matt, things like degrowth were around um, and like to greater or lesser degrees in different parts of the world. But certainly we didn't have the kind of like cottage industry, I guess, of degrowth publishing that has emerged in the last few years or, uh, you know, the planet is hotter now than it was in 2015. Uh, lots of things. I, I often think, too, about how 2015 feels in some ways like a very long time ago and in other ways not that long ago at all. Like Donald Trump became the president <laughs> shortly after, you know, like things like that are all kind of uh, in the mix here. A pandemic happened. Uh, the war in Ukraine is happening. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how Pope Francis addresses all that and also to see where his own priorities have kind of maybe not like shifted, but come into different focus. Like he's been talking so much about migrants and refugees lately, talking a lot about peace and the need for dialogue in the world, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I expect to see Laudato or what is it called? Laudate Deum uh, kind of remix a lot of these themes from Laudato Si, but also maybe put them into some some different dialogues. So that'll be interesting. One other interesting thing that maybe we can draw out too in the time that's passed between 2015 and now, man, it is a very long time now that I'm saying it out loud, is that uh, uh, the IPCC reports, I mean, they've been they've been an ongoing um, rollout of reports every year since, I don't know, like 1998 or something like that. But in 2021, that was the big one that everyone seemed to care about uh, because that's when they dropped the... Um, the big numbers about uh, uh, the inevitability of 1.5 degrees average global warming and also the big summary for policymakers that uh, you might remember from our podcast and from the monthly review <laughs> that uh, were heavily influenced by um, global north countries to maybe skew them in particular directions. All to say, a lot of things have changed, but a lot of things have stayed the same. Mainly the uh, <laughs> the inevitability of, of, climate, of climate change and... Uh, the scale and intensity of climate catastrophes. So it's all bad, but maybe this great Pope has the answer to the, to the questions that we're asking here. You know, uh, maybe one interesting kind of circumstance around this too. So Pope Francis, you know, he made this announcement that this exhortation is coming out. And I don't know if it was like planned to be this way or if it was just like a thing the Pope said, and then everybody kind of had to like deal with it. But he made the announcement at a meeting of um, like rectors or heads of different universities in Latin America and the Caribbean. And the, the theme of the meeting was called organizing hope. And okay. first of all, I think that is very interesting. Um, a cool way to relate to hope is something that you have to organize and a great word in the midst of a situation that is like increasingly terrifying and spooky. Uh, but uh, it's really interesting to me that Pope Francis made that, that announcement in a, an address to universities, you know, and kind of thinking through, like, what does it mean to organize hope and consider all that in light of the scholarship that you're getting from the IPCC and other kinds of technical experts. And something I found really interesting in Laudato Si, and we'll talk about this later on, is he talks pretty regularly about science and technology, but he's also pretty critical of what he calls the, the technocratic paradigm. And I think uh, trying to maybe anticipate what's going to be in Laudato Deum uh, it'll be interesting too to see, I guess, where he's dealing with the the science and all that kind of stuff that that we've learned even in the last you know less than a decade since Laudato Si came out. If he if he says the word degrowth in in there though, I'm gonna freak out. So <laughs> that's my one my one big watchword. <laughs> do you have any Do you have any big shot calls, Dean, from like the sidelines? Like, what do you think he's gonna say? Or Whoa. like, is there a thing that you like if you were if you were his ghostwriter, <laughs> you would be writing in there? <laughs> Great question. Also, uh, another fun fact about things like encyclicals and exhortations, uh, they often do have ghostwriters like and and it's not like a big secret. Laudato Si, for example, was written by um, Cardinal Peter Turkson, who is a bishop from Ghana. 
and uh, and he has a whole team of people too. So they write like a first draft, and then they have consultations with other theologians and scientists, and then of course the Pope as well is very involved in kind of identifying what should be in it and so on. So all that to say, like these documents, we always say they're Pope Francis's, you know, words or writing, and like I guess in a sense they are, but they're also very collective documents. So anyway, all that to say, um, just thinking through what Francis's priorities are. And thinking about also Fratelli Tutti, which was the other encyclical released um, between Laudato Si and now during the pandemic, I guess my expectations, I'm sure there will be things about peace and war, which are present in Laudato Si, but not in a, um, not as explicitly. I expect to see more of that for sure. Uh, Francis has been, I guess, doing a pretty delicate diplomatic dance with the war in Ukraine. And one thing he has said, though, that I think is pretty compelling is that like wars, regardless of how you feel about them, are pretty much always also like huge opportunities for making money and destroying the environment and testing the means of violence. So I expect a sort of maybe anti-war message to come through. Uh, I'm sure, like I said, there will be a lot, too, on migrants and refugees, including climate migration. I think that'll probably be big. Uh, he's been on these tours since Laudato Sea. You know, he's gone to uh, Africa, for example where he talked a lot about uh, extractives and what's happening to the environment there. So, yeah, I expect to see a pretty Global South-focused document and something that, again, is just calling attention to people who are the victims of violence. Uh, something he says in Laudato Si, which has kind of been the tagline, is that there are um, there's one crisis that is both social and ecological. And I think we're probably going to see some more of that that social piece come out in this document. At least that's maybe my hope, but also I think resonant with the kinds of things he's been interested in lately. Yeah. Huh. Great predictions. I feel like we're playing fantasy football with, <laughs> with this year. Um, that's right. Well, let's get into let out of C a little bit and, uh, let's let out see how we feel about it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to stop that at all. That's not too much. <laughs> um, okay, no, I am going to stop myself. Uh, well, okay, so oh, you're getting a Ladato sick of this whole thing because <laughs> oh it's your God. fault. You open the door, I'm walking through it. I'll Ladato see you later. Um, Francis <laughs> opens it all up, uh, saying this As Christians, we are also called to accept the world as a sacrament of communion, as a way of sharing with God and our neighbors on a global scale. It's our humble conviction that the divine and the human meet in the slightest detail in the seamless garment of God's creation and the last speck of dust on our planet. Um, so he starts off with this like big, uh, big and lofty theological framing. And I think it's great. Uh, it's big and lofty, but it's also pretty material, right? That you have to, uh, if you're interested in loving God and your neighbors, it does actually mean um, kind of figuring out how we fit into creation as people, as beings, and also as like political actors. And to take the next step towards like kind of orienting um, himself or I guess all of us <laughs> towards like what that means. He says that uh, I believe that St. Francis is the example par excellence of care for the vulnerable and of integral ecology lived out joyfully and authentically. He's the patron saint of all who study and work in the area of ecology. And he's also much loved by non-Christians. He was particularly concerned for God's creation and for the poor and outcast. He shows us just how inseparable the bond is between Concern for nature, justice for the poor, commitment to our society, and interior peace. So I think that, uh, I mean, okay, there's a lot of things going on here that we could talk about, but I think that just the invocation of St. Francis within Laudato Si is actually really helpful for orienting like what type of document this is. It's one that, is, it's like about climate change, right? It's like, it's about ecology and it's it's saying things about climate change and ecology that I think like other people were not saying in 2015. Um, I mean, for sure, a lot of people on the left were saying some things like this. But what Francis is after here is not just like uh, something about, uh, you know, a materialist analysis of the economy or whatever, even though you do get some of that in this. <laughs> but it's about how all of these things are connected, not just in like the macroeconomic um, way, but also in like a, a really real spiritual concern that I think people have or maybe need to develop more. <laughs> but I guess it's it's interesting because he's he's drawing all of these things and all of these things together in a really 
systemic analysis, but through a really theological lens, which I think is um, maybe not what you'd always expect when it comes to theology. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is an interesting document, too, because I guess we should have said this up front. An encyclical, if you don't know what it is, is a letter that is meant to be cycled around the church, usually, um, that the Pope writes. And it's typically, an encyclical is kind of the the top tier of, like, Catholic social teaching or doctrine, you know, there's maybe some other stuff going on in fallibility and stuff that's a little higher, but an encyclical has a, a unique level of authority in the church. And um, these things like exhortations, like the one that's about to come out, are typically maybe like a rung lower than that. But uh, all that to say, encyclicals are typically meant to be kind of instructions for what Christians should think. But Laudato Si was unique in that it was addressed not only to the church, but to everybody in the world. And you can see Francis kind of going out of his way, I think, to draw from the Christian tradition and figure out how to communicate it to people who might not be Christian necessarily. So picking somebody like St. Francis is uh, an interesting choice and, and trying to maybe like make those theological contributions, offer like a more cosmic vision, something a little bit bigger, uh, but also making it invitational and really emphasizing that like, the climate crisis is a global crisis, and and this is just the Pope's contribution to a much bigger conversation, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, just a, a lot to say maybe about how the the theology of Let Out to See comes through. It's not to say that like it's a very pluralist document or that there's no Catholicism in it. That is definitely not true. It's it's <laughs> that's pretty Catholic. <laughs> it's pretty Catholic. It's pretty. I mean, as he says, you know, the the world is a sacrament of communion. <laughs> you can't get more Catholic than that. But uh, all that to say, like, it, it's an interesting exercise in trying to think through what does the leader of the Catholic Church have to say to people inside, but also outside the church, and that's just like an audience that isn't usually. Um, the concern of an encyclical letter. I mean, I think you can kind of see the fruits of that too. Even like Verso published a, an edition of this, right? Like, which is yeah. saying something. <laughs> there must be something pretty radical in here if, uh, if you know, if Verso is publishing it. <laughs> the title of it, of their edition, is um, the encyclical on climate change and inequality, which I yeah. think is very funny. Um, that is not Pope Francis's title, but good for them. <laughs> that's yeah, fine. I mean, uh, if you got to market it to people who are not interested in theology, that's probably the best way to go about it. <laughs> well, okay, let, let's let's <laughs> yeah, jump yeah. into I think maybe just some more of the setup of the of the document, or at least the very first part. Uh, so the very first chapter of the encyclical is called "What's Happening to Our Common Home," and you, you might guess if you if you're looking around yourself, it's not great. Um, there's a few things that we could say about this chapter. I mean, I'm not going to talk about it in any exhaustive way, but um, this is the the setting up of the problem, or at least a part of the part of the place where he sets up the problem. There's another place he does it later on too. But um, in this place, what he's talking about is kind of like the degradation of Earth, and and not just like you know, isn't it bad that people are polluting? But it's like um, you know, the systemic the systemic degradation of the earth. And uh, there are some really interesting words he uses to explain this without saying he, okay. Francis has a lot to say about markets really particularly in here. Um, but there's a real, there's a real, I don't know, like he, he goes to some, some lengths to talk about capitalism in ways I think are actually evocative and helpful, even if not always using like the, uh, the correct Marxist vernacular or whatever, which I mean, makes sense, but, <laughs> but uh, I think it's, it's helpful nonetheless. And here's an example of it kind of right off the bat here. So, uh, Francis is talking about globalization. He's talking about the acceleration of like production and like the, um, the shifting of uh, local economies towards global goals, I think. And he says this, the continued acceleration of changes affecting humanity and the planet is coupled today with more intensified pace of life and work, which might be called rapidification. Although change is part of the working of complex systems, the speed with which human activity has developed contrasts with the naturally slow, slow pace of biological evolution. Moreover, the goals of this rapid and constant change are not necessarily geared towards the common good or toward integral and sustainable human development. Um, I like this, or I really think this is helpful because he's not, um, th this is a, a really important materialist understanding of the world that like, it's not just that, um, that uh, you know, complex systems necessarily have to change, but it's like that the one that we're doing it is trying to do it at speeds at which are extremely bad or harmful to all people and recognizing too that, 
the goal is uh, is is not human flourishing or whatever high-minded Catholic idea is behind that, um, the common good, whatever that might <laughs> might mean uh, explicitly. But it's towards you know the creation of prophets. Um, and he says, as a result, the Earth, our home, is beginning to look more and more like an immense pile of filth. In many parts of the planet, the elderly lament the once beautiful landscapes are now covered with rubbish. Um, I don't know. It's good. Uh, it's a good place to kind of start. That there's uh there's something that is wrong with the earth and that thing is us and it's you know not just us but it's like the particular way that humans are um producing and consuming quicker and quicker um and uh i, I don't know it's good it's good uh like, like i said this is 2015 and, and things have i think the conversation around climate change has intensified but um in 2015 uh for something the pope to say this is good i would say <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it reminds me of uh, the conversations at the monthly review around the metabolic rift, right? That for uh, for Marx, there's this identification that um, humans and the natural world have this kind of relationship. They have a metabolism and the economy is, is part of that, you know, like uh, our systems have to be able to have a, a healthy metabolism with respect to what uh, what we're taking in from the environment and putting back out into it. And capitalism creates a, a rift in that metabolism. The economic and technological things that capitalism requires, uh, especially in that speed or kind of pace to always be, you know, one up on your your market competition or your <laughs> imperialist rivals or whatever it might be, um, that drive to kind of increase your position in that competitive race is always also uh, overtaxing the earth. Like the concern is not with the equilibrium or kind of healthy cycles that happen in, in nature and our participation within nature as part of nature or whatever, however you'd like to put it, uh, capitalism creates a, a huge rift, a big disconnect between those processes that is unsustainable. And I think you get that really strongly in Laudato Si, both in what you were just reading and elsewhere, that Francis has also a kind of critique of the way that the capitalist economy we have is totally alienated from uh, from the way that the earth requires us to to treat it if we want to survive on it. And I think that's actually a pretty profound point as well. And again, like he's not using the terms of metabolic rift, <laughs> which let's face it, nobody uses and that's fine. <laughs> but I think there's something intuitive there that just shows that, you know, this is uh, yeah, a pretty like I guess uh, a pretty obvious thing that emerges in capitalism if you're looking around at, at what it's doing. Okay, but what if he did say metabolic rift in the next one? I think that'd be great. I'm going to I'm gonna say, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that throughout the episode where I'm going to just keep saying, what if he did say this in the next one? And then I might get one right. Yeah, and when yeah. I do, it's going to be really great. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say, if you get one right, it's worth like 10,000 of my own points for getting <laughs> okay. things right. That's fair. Uh, there has to be a sliding scale of uh, points <laughs> for this uh, <laughs> fantasy papal document. <laughs> um, and just to be clear, it's worth ten thousand of my of uh, of the points, I guess, compared to the points that I make. But each one of my points is worth a okay. thousand points. So I would say for every ten I get, it equals uh, one of your you're worthless just, points. You're reinventing a worse form of cryptocurrency, and you have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate cryptocurrency so crypto nobody even knows what it means okay let's let's get back on track here so uh the pope he's telling <laughs> us that the way that we're living our lives as humans as a species structurally and systemically is a problem um we're piling up too much garbage we're making things too fast we're consuming things too fast that's all bad and um for the pope to say that it's interesting i think it's always good always tell people those things it's great um but uh, you could read those kinds of things that aren't anywhere, right? Those those big materialist analyses of climate change and production, they exist and they're, you know, whatever. The Pope doesn't have to tell you that. But the thing that the Pope does tell you next, I think, is actually really interesting. Um, it's not just like materialism. It's not just that capitalism is bad. But it's also like a particular orientation that that humans have <laughs> Um, that has gotten us here. So it's not just a material problem, but it's also a spiritual problem. And that's now that's Pope territory, if I've ever heard it before. Uh, he says in the next chapter, uh, maybe not the next chapter, but he says in a later chapter called The Human Roots of the Ecological Crisis, a misguided anthropocentrism leads to, leads to a misguided lifestyle. And the apostolic exhortation <laughs> and 
even Gelly Gar- even Jellyon. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it might as well be. I can never say it with my Protestant mouth. Um, anyways, he goes on to say, I noted that the practical relativism typical of our age even is even more dangerous than doctrinal relativism. When human beings place themselves at the center, they give absolute priority to the immediate convenience and all else becomes relative. He goes on to say, the culture of relativism is the same disorder which drives one person to take advantage of another, to treat one as mere objects, imposing forced labor on them or enslaving them to pay their debts. And he goes on to say a handful of other awful things that people do. He finishes the thought saying, it's also the mindset of those, those like anthropocentric uh, cultural relativist types of people. Uh, to say, let us allow the invisible forces of the market to regulate the economy and consider their impact on society and nature as collateral damage. I think that this is actually good here too, though, because it's kind of connecting the spiritual to the like macroeconomic uh, analysis that he was giving in the previous chapter. Um, and and it connects them all, I think, in an, in an actual helpful way, right? Um, the, the, the more like materialist analysis, the Marxist analysis might just kind of like stop at the uh, macroeconomic level. But I think adding the spiritual element is actually pretty helpful um, because, uh, you know, capitalism, it's a thing. It's in the world and it's, you know, uh, driving out of control patterns of uh, production and consumption. But it is really worth noting that like there are people who are actually doing that on the ground and that there's something that does make them do that in one way or another, right? And uh, different philosophers would find different ways to talk about this in particular, like um, in more psychoanalytic traditions, you might call this like a a particular type of desire or something, right? Desires toward um, consumption or or even like a desire towards like uh, like narcissism or um, a callousness towards other people in terms of like, you know, you don't, you don't care if you have to enslave a whole group of people to get your iPhone, you're going to do it anyways or something. But uh, saying it's kind of like a spiritual ill or some kind of like, you know, malady of the soul or whatever is I think pretty powerful because it kind of tells you um, that the answer to the questions of uh you know structure structural climate change is not just structural answers but it's also kind of like the the uh you, you require a change in the spirit of people a change in the way that people desire or a change in like the the values that people hold like really like near and dear to themselves all i'm trying to say here <laughs> is that uh pope francis is going to give you both things the big materialist analysis but also an, an analysis of like what's wrong with people like individually <laughs> kind of and i think that uh both are pretty good perspectives yeah i think that's true and you know there's a good dialectical relationship there um important to recognize that uh, material conditions definitely give us bad ideas, but bad ideas also give us bad material conditions. And uh, you do need room to figure out both of those things or you can't really make any progress. Um, I think there's a lot going on in Let Odyssey at this sort of general philosophical level, you know, lots of um, reflection on what is a human being and how do we consider the good in relation to human societies and all that kind of stuff. And I think that is great. Uh, but I also think what's particularly helpful to me in Laudatasi is the way that Pope Francis has the the kind of courage, I guess, to take on the political and economic situation that leads to this uh, whole mess. Um, as I said, like he thinks the social and ecological are paired together, tied together, they come together. And so any solution to them is also going to be a uh, a solution that has to involve the the social questions as well as the the ecological questions, and he has a lot of critical choice words for people who want to separate those things. He even says at one point that uh, ecological or green rhetoric can kind of get caught up in these technological solutions that forget the poor or see the poor as, I guess, people who can be sort of thrown away in the the drive to make a sustainable difference or whatever. Um, we've talked about that on the on other episodes on Laudatasi in the past. I won't go through it here. But I guess what's really interesting to me is how he does draw in those political and kind of economic angles in general. And, you know, we've been talking a bunch about dependency theory on this podcast and degrowth and everything else. And it was interesting rereading Laudatasi in light of that. So, like, the the philosophy stuff, I think, is easy. The theology stuff is easy. If you tell a Christian, hey, do you think that, like, our attitudes or our... Um, anthropocentrism or however we want to put it are driving climate change like nine times out of ten i think a christian is going to say yes of course and that's exactly why we should all be better christians or like they should go to church more 
or whatever it might be, you know, or the church has a responsibility to kind of help people be better or repent. And like, that's fine. Um, But I think it's the other stuff that's a lot harder to get your head around. And that's what I think is especially uh, important to have the Pope say something like that. So I don't know, Matt, do you want (laughs) to can I uh, make a a play here and just push us into a conversation about development? (laughs) And yeah, uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, I, I feel like he's a great a great pastor, but also a really surprising kind of economist. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that in a commentary on uh, Leonardo C. Leonardo Boff said that uh, that Francis's writing is really pastoral. He's he's the excited pastor for sure. But I think that that is uh, selling a little too short or maybe maybe not. I don't know. I guess there's there's a lot of kind of interesting nuanced points in here about development and also even about economic growth that I think are worth talking about. And um I, I, I'll just say, I guess you can be an excited pastor talking about climate change, but you can also <laughs> know about development. So, and he does. Uh, yeah, I don't know, Dean, where do you want to start with that? Yeah, well, uh, there's lots about politics and economics, but one thing that kind of stuck out to me rereading it was a section on inequality and ecology. And I'll read just a little bit of it because I think it maps on to things we've been talking about in the show more recently. Uh, He says, inequity affects not only individuals, but entire countries. It compels us to consider an ethics of international relations with effects on the environment and the disproportionate use of natural resources by certain countries over long periods of time. The export of raw materials to satisfy satisfy markets in the industrialized north has caused harm locally, as, for example, in mercury pollution and gold mining or sulfur dioxide pollution and copper mining, there's a pressing need to calculate the use of environmental space throughout the world for depositing gas residues, which have been accumulating for two centuries and have created a situation which currently affects all the countries of the world. And then he says quite a bit more about kind of the, the specifics here. Um, but he goes on to say, there's also damage caused by the export of solid waste and toxic liquids to developing countries and by the pollution produced by companies which operate in less developed countries in ways they can never do at home in the countries in which they raise their capital. He says, quote, We note that often the businesses which operate this way are multinationals. They do here what they would never do in developed countries or the so-called first world. Generally, after ceasing their activity and withdrawing, they leave behind great human and environmental liabilities such as unemployment, abandoned towns, the depletion of natural reserves, deforestation, the impoverishment of agriculture and local stock breeding, open pits, riven hills, polluted rivers, and a handful of social works which are no longer sustainable. And to me, reading that, like, I couldn't help especially thinking about being a person in Canada because, for example, like, the big issue here is mining always, and tons and tons of capital is raised for mining in in Canada. Even if a company that is doing the mining in the Global South is not Canadian, the chances are they've had a conversation with, like, banks in Canada to help figure out how to finance uh, running a mine because that's just, like, what... Canadian banks do they they know how to do mining and that kind of note about like uh, I mean mining abuses happen here 100 percent and especially with respect to indigenous land so like that is an important qualifier but if you think about like certain mines that happen in different towns across Canada you know there is a brutal very hard to learn about so all that to say like it was interesting just kind of revisiting the the encyclical and seeing Pope Francis try to connect the dots between these pretty material situations that my guess is like most Canadians, for example, don't think about. And you could think of dozens of other industries, textiles and everything else that have kind of a similar effect and to create maybe a moral language to talk that through like that that term, the uh, the ecological debt between the global north and south, I think is a really compelling one. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you can see how that all does actually, you know, play into the Franciscan vision that you get at the very beginning too, right? That uh, St. Francis is a person that we can often use to think through the ways that creation and poor, uh, creation and the poor are like kind of um, intertwined with one another. And uh, Mm -hmm. here you go again. (laughs) I mean, it's just a a great example of the ways that... um, particular types of Catholic social thinking are really like (laughs) really lend themselves well to dependency theory. And uh, it's weird that people don't lean into that more often. (laughs) I wish they would. (laughs) Yeah, I wish that too. Um, And I think it's also interesting the way that he ties that 
that insight of uh, dependency theory of, you know, these kind of global South countries and their economies being dependent on the investment and the exploitation of the global North. He ties that too to some pretty nuanced conversations around like what to do. You know, you see a lot of headlines, especially during like the COP meetings with the UN or whenever there's kind of a big like multinational is like China or India, uh, but also like smaller countries. Like I think we talked about on the show once, uh, <laughs> There's this moment where John Kerry went to, I forget what it was, somewhere in Africa, and he was, like, chastising these African nations for, you know, like, not cleaning up some of their industry or whatever, noting that, like, they contribute, like, less than a percent to, you know, global warming or whatever. Um, But John Kerry is, like, coming from a country that is actively, like, producing the most uh, pollution per capita and, like, not even taking into account the pollution produced by supply chains that uh, service the the consumer interests of those kinds of countries in the global north. So all that to say, I guess it's just like, it's interesting to have a a Pope drawing attention to these kinds of things. And there is a a natural resonance with that sort of dependency theory economics that you were getting in something like liberation theology, but it's being, um, I guess, uh, filtered and then kind of um, reproduced in something like a papal encyclical such that people can maybe, I hope at least like hear it in a fresh way without like getting spooked by something like the history of dependency theory or Marxism or whatever other things kind of get people's backs against the wall a little bit. Yeah, totally. Well, that's a good, <laughs> a good note. I mean, there's so much more dependency stuff here to talk about, but here's one I do want to talk about just cause it is a particular annoying thing that I think it's great that the Pope does call out. Um, so this is later in that in that same section, like pretty far later. But uh, he's talking about, you know, like some of the green alternatives or the ways that, um, uh, you know, green ideas, quote unquote, green ideas get leveraged to just like, I don't know, help capitalists, <laughs> basically. So he has this uh, very, very good shot at carbon credits. Um, and I think it's good (laughs) so anyways he says the strategy of buying and selling carbon credits can lead to a new form of speculation which would not help reduce emissions or polluting gases worldwide the system seems to provide a quick and easy solution under the guise of a certain commitment to the environment but in no way does it allow for the radical change which present circumstances require rather it may simply become a ploy with which permits maintaining the excessive consumption of some countries and sectors um i mean this is great for a lot of reasons first of all he's right that carbon credits are stupid and (laughs) we're right to ridicule them, I think is, uh, is good. Um, saying that they're a new form of speculation is exactly what has happened. Um, not since 2015. I mean, it was happening in 2015 as well. It just continues in a lot of, uh, really stupid and gross ways. But I think that like calling out carbon credits is, um, helpful even at a deeper level too, because, you know, uh, global economies like the U.S. or Canada or I don't know the U.K. Right? They will they will use things like carbon credits to try to like demonstrate that you know they're the good guys. They're giving it a good shot. They're like you know corporations out here, they're doing it, <laughs> and we shouldn't be that mad at them because at least they're giving it a shot. They're trying. Uh, meanwhile, chastising other countries and other like corporations in those countries um, for not doing it or whatever, whatever. At the end of the day, though, it's nothing, I guess. And that's the part that seems important is that um, countries like the U.S. or, you know, other countries in the global north that do rely on the um, exported production into other countries around the world, they'll try all kinds of stupid Mm -hmm. sleight of hands that will make it seem like they are, you know, they have some kind of moral superiority. And I guess that, that part seems so important um, because I don't know, like you said, people in the U S they will constantly bring up China or India and try to hand wave away, whatever it is that they're doing. I mean, people even in the UK do this as well, which I think is especially stupid. Um, I mean, the UK is a smaller place than the U S but like, (laughs) um still accounts for uh, a pretty significant amount of carbon emissions um just the a few days ago uh rishi sunak the the prime minister here he um he reversed course on a bunch of like uh uh ecological things um (laughs) it's a long story and i don't need to get into it all of it now but he he did have this whole big thing about how um 
the UK is a country of drivers and uh, how great it, <laughs> it is for cars. And people were, um, I mean, a lot of people were mad, especially people on the left are mad about this whole thing. But there were some people um, maybe in the center and definitely on the right who are like, well, it doesn't even matter. The UK is not that big of a country. Who even cares what happens here? Um, you know, kind of like trying to, trying to do anything they can to sort of pass the buck and be like, you know, you really have to worry about these other countries. You got to worry about India. You got to worry about China. Um, just so stupid. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it seems especially stupid given the like the historical ties to the industrial revolution the UK has to try to say like, well, <laughs> you're this country doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of like producing <laughs> carbon emissions or something. Uh, anyways, it's just all dumb. It's too much. I hate it. Um, <laughs> thank you, Pope Francis, for telling us how stupid carbon <laughs> credits are. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, is Pope Francis is, like you said earlier, really calling attention to the root causes or structures that are um, leading to climate crisis. And I guess a minute ago, I got carried away talking about John Kerry. I said uh, Pope Francis, he's able to talk in a nuanced way about how to solve these things. Um, And I'll give a a good example in a minute here. But the carbon credits is a, a um, a good example, too, right, that he's saying this is one possible solution, but it completely ignores like both the historical realities that led to the crisis, but also the kind of maybe like, I don't know, uh, different set of of uh, things or a different set of situations and circumstances that kind of um, lead to a situation where the global North countries have the like luxury of thinking about even a, a bizarre like Ponzi scheme like carbon credits in a way that global North or global South countries kind of don't or can't. So anyway, uh, something he says that maybe continues on this line, he says, uh, the foreign debt of poor countries has become a way of controlling them. Yet this is not the case where ecological debt is concerned. In different ways, developing countries where the most important reserves of the biosphere are found continue to fuel the development of richer countries at the cost of their own present and future. The land of the southern poor is rich and mostly unpolluted, yet access to ownership of goods and resources for meeting vital needs is inhibited by a system of commercial relations and ownership, which is structurally perverse. The the developed countries ought to help pay this debt by significantly limiting their consumption of non-renewable energy and by assisting poorer countries to support policies and programs of sustainable development. Uh, And this is where I think it gets like pretty interesting. The poorest areas and countries are less capable of adopting new models for reducing environmental impact because they lack the wherewithal to develop the necessary processes and to cover their costs. We must continue to be aware that regarding climate change, there are differentiated responsibilities. And I think that is like a huge piece too that a lot of people don't think about. Like uh, even in degrowth conversations, I think there's folks who think degrowth is kind of a flat like recommendation for every country Mm -hmm. to just like quit making stuff which first of all that's not what degrowth people say (laughs) but also uh, something that pope francis is addressing here that yeah like countries in the global north just are gonna have to like quit buying all their like big minions backpacks that's just part of it uh (laughs) they're gonna have to stop like like extending their energy grids so that like new crypto bros can like open a bunch of crypto mines or chat gpt can like suck up all these uh resources to I don't know, like help you finish your homework quicker or like whatever. Uh, And they'll also have to accept that like global South economies are going to have some dirty industry. Like that's just part of it. And like Mm -hmm. that sucks, but that's like the economic situation that we have created. And I think it's such an interesting thing too, because you get uh, the John Kerry's of the world and others who do pass the buck to these global South countries being like, well, you should be cleaning up your act. And it's like, well, that's just like not realistic at all and completely impossible, largely because of the actions of countries like the U S and Europe. So uh, it's cool that Pope Francis is introducing some important uh, nuance into these conversations too. Yeah, totally. Well, just to like highlight this relationship a little bit more, um, the climate reparations conversation was a pretty big piece of the cop 26. Uh, is that what it was yeah. in 2022? The loss okay. and damage and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It was and it was it was a big part of the conversation. And you can um, you probably don't need to guess that the United States was not <laughs> not interested in it. Um, but I remember there was like a there's an illustration that some of the conversations brought up about Mozambique that I thought were actually really helpful to kind of like conceptualize why exactly climate reparations are so important. And especially I mean, it makes sense within the uh, the conversation about dependency, too. But um uh, I, I had to look this up a minute ago, so I'll just I'll read it here. This is from uh, a report um, around that conversation. 
but they said that uh, uh, you know Mozambique they suffered this like a bunch of awful cyclones in 2019, and because of that, they were forced to take on a 118 million dollar loan from the IMF. Um, mm-hmm. Not <laughs> not a group of people you want to take a loan from if you don't have to. Um, but anyways, uh, the report goes on to say, yet an average person in Mozambique contributes 73.5 times fewer carbon emissions than in the United States. As the wealthy United States and European countries combined contribute the most the most climate change inducing carbon emissions, 24.5 and 16.3 respectively, Mozambicans, like other frontline communities, are burdened by millions of dollars in debt and are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis. I guess like that particular thing is so interesting because uh, it's not interesting. It's a tragedy. It's absolutely stupid, but it definitely shows you like that there are some people responsible for climate change and some people who are less responsible for it, like Mm -hmm. 73.5 times less (laughs) responsible than others. Um, But I I don't know, like that type of calculus, I think on one hand, I think some people might just roll their eyes at it because it's like, well, do you really do you really want to like calculate who exactly is responsible for this? Um, but yes, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Be- because, well, because who is responsible is like a systemic issue. Right. And like, if you know who's responsible, you know exactly what places should stop producing and consuming so much and stop producing, you know, so much carbon emissions. So uh, it, it's good to keep an eye on that particular type of thing. I mean, Mozambique is, uh, you know, a, a part of the world system for sure. Um, and, uh, and, and just less, less culpable in the grand scheme of ethics, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, something Pope Francis goes on to say too, that I think relates to that. He says for poor countries, the priorities must be to eliminate extreme poverty and to promote the social development of their people. At the same time, they need to acknowledge the scandalous level of consumption in some privileged sectors of their population and combat corruption more effectively. Love the critique of the national bourgeoisie. Great work. Um, They are likewise bound to develop less polluting forms of energy production. But to do so, they require the help of countries which have experienced great growth at the cost of the ongoing pollution of the planet. And, you know, he says more about how to do that. But I think it's it's that connection, too, that's important that like the global north has just been basically given like a blank check to ruin as much of the planet as they want, as long as they are growing economically. And like, yeah, should the global South, should Mozambique, you know, find some other ways of like developing that are more sustainable for sure. But like, how are you supposed to do that? If the global North is basically just saddling you with a debt for like, like a financial debt for the consequences of its very awful patterns of like, economic and ecological behavior around the world. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's important, too, to recognize exactly how challenging this stuff is. Like Pope Francis calls for international solidarity all the time and let out to see that's kind of his like, I think, preferred solution. Like the idea is that wealthy countries wouldn't act paternalistically toward poor countries, but would kind of come alongside them and everybody would work together to, you know, deal with the crisis in a way that that is uh, restorative and built in bonds and solidarity and so on. But to do that, like you would literally have to abolish the IMF and the world bank, <laughs> you know, like these are pretty like uh, on the one hand, you could call them like naive goals. And there is a kind of naivete there. And I, I think that's actually kind of the role of the Pope sometimes is to be like naive on purpose. Like there's something to that that is pedagogically useful, but it's also like a pretty huge challenge. Like if you start thinking about, how do I deliver on these uh, suggestions? You're going to end up pulling threads or you should pull threads that lead you to some pretty radical conclusions as well. And I think that's something that maybe uh, the church in general, but also many commentators also haven't um, just haven't pulled out even in the last decade since Laudato Si has been published. Uh, I think there is a tendency to domesticate the document and make its demands more realistic or kind of make them fit into liberalism. I mean, just to keep picking on John Kerry, like he uh, had praised Laudato Si just in the last year as like a great contribution of the Pope to the ecological discourse. And like that, like surely cannot be true (laughs) from John Kerry's perspective, you know, like at least not in an authentic way. There's no way that he can read this document and be like, oh yeah, this is basically what the U S policy around Uh, international relations or ecology happens to be. So um, I think it's important too to maybe pull out what are those radical consequences and be able to say that. And maybe that's something going into Laudate Deum as well. Like it is also surely going to have some pretty 
radical moments and it'll be the responsibility of people in the church who are willing to stand up for justice to like pull those out and and not accept the domestication of that kind of vision yeah well even that i mean just that it exists in the document though too does give i think activists a lot of cover like especially in the catholic church so that's good at least um well in the last few minutes here i think it'd be good to turn maybe a little bit of a different direction not entirely different just a little bit different um there's a few places in um there's a few places in the encyclical where growth comes up and specifically economic growth um there's a few places in the encyclical where economic growth comes up and i think it's worth talking about because it does relate to dependency theory a lot because uh you don't get economic growth without (laughs) without dependency um but uh, I think it's helpful too. I mean, like I, I mentioned earlier, right? Like I would freak out if degrowth got a mention in the in the next one. But um, I think it's interesting to see how Francis was thinking about growth in 2015. Francis and <laughs> and associated writers. <laughs> um, but uh, maybe we can even we we can use the conversation on on growth even maybe to mark some distance because uh, there might be some different language we'd use today uh, as well. But anyways, I'll read a bit of it here. Uh, He writes, economic growth, for its part, tends to produce predictable reactions and a certain standardization within the aim of simplifying procedures and reducing costs. This suggests the need for an economic ecology capable of appealing to a broader vision of reality. The protection of the environment is, in fact, an integral part of the development process and cannot be considered in isolation from it. We originally need a humanism capable of bringing together different fields of knowledge, including economics, in the service of a more integral and integrating vision. Um, the the phrase integral and integrating comes up a lot, and actually, I kind of appreciate it in this uh, this conversation about growth. That economic growth, you know, in and of itself, will you you know tends toward a particular direction of simplifying procedures and reducing costs, which mainly means you know like austerity for people and mm-hmm. massive profits for corporations. Uh, but uh, the the phrase like, uh, you know, the, the use of the, the phrase in, in, integral, right, the integral ecology of it all, the um, the integration of all these different ideas uh, together, it does actually kind of uh, give a certain degrowth vibe to it that like there has to be this like different way um, of orienting growth, not necessarily towards um, growth in and of itself, but towards something, something bigger, um, a more like a comprehensive idea of society where people are not just like um, (laughs) left up to the whims of corporations, but where the economy serves like some kind of uh, greater good. Uh, I mean, even in the last section about dependency, when he's talking about poor countries, uh, eliminating extreme poverty and promoting social development and so on, I guess you get those same kinds of vibes from, from his thoughts about how growth should be oriented. Yeah, he goes on to say even, um, he says, frequently, in fact, people's quality of life actually diminishes by the deterioration of the environment, the low quality of food or depletion of resources in the midst of economic growth. In this context, talk of sustainable growth usually becomes a way of distracting attention and offering excuses. It absorbs the language and values of ecology into the categories of finance and technocracy and the social and environmental responsibility of businesses often gets reduced to a series of marketing and image enhancing messages or measures. Um, a great critique of uh, greenwashing, but also a yeah. good critique too of, you know, like people will say that all the time that like, well, you need growth. Uh, it just has to be sustainable or like growth with, you know, a human face or something like that. And uh, I love that Pope Francis is just like not backing off on this point because growth in itself, economic growth is not an indicator of integral development. You know, you can have lots of economic growth and for that very reason, have the disintegration, the disintegration of your community. And I think that's a a necessary link to make as well. Yeah, man, if there's one word I would love to just like, like bottle up and throw out of conversation forever that is sustainable. I I think I I hate (laughs) it more than most anything when it comes to things within climate change, because uh, every corporation on the planet will tell you that they're practicing sustainable growth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what, like mm-hmm. what that means is completely a black box. You have no idea. It's just, <laughs> it's just whatever they say it is. Anyways, totally. uh, it's, it's good here. I mean, I, I don't know. You could easily see Francis saying something about degrowth. That's just what I'm saying. If he does, I'm going to get <laughs> some crypto points and it'll be good for me. <laughs> Uh, maybe at the end here, it'd be worth just, uh, diving into the, the economic piece a little more fully too, because in addition to the comment on growth, he has a real critique of the speculative economy, 
which I'm sure we've talked about in the show in the past, but I don't remember doing it. Um, and uh, it, it's pretty radical, like in sections 189 and following in the document, he specifically talks about the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. Um, one of my favorite parts of it, he says, uh, <laughs> production is not always rational. It's usually tied to economic variables, which assign to products a value that does not necessarily correspond to their real worth. This frequently le- leads to an overproduction of some commodities with unnecessary impact on the environment and negative results on regional economies. And here's the biggest part. The financial bubble also tends to be a productive bubble. The problem of the real economy is not confronted with vigor, yet it's the real economy which makes diversification and improvement in production possible, helps companies function well, and enables small and medium businesses to develop and create employment. And then he goes on to add, we should always keep in mind that the that environmental product protection cannot be assured solely on the basis of financial calculations of costs and benefits. The environment is one of those goods that cannot be adequately safeguarded or promoted by market forces. Once more, we need to reject a magical conception of the market, which would suggest that problems can be solved simply by an increase on the profits of companies or individuals. Um, he says a ton more stuff. Like, man, you could quote so many pieces out of this. Uh, he talks a lot about what he calls uh, productive development and how challenging that is, and even uh, sustainable development and how that has like weird forms of growth that can also be very irresponsible and bad. <laughs> like, just uh, really holding nothing back, I think, in this particular uh, section or chapter. Um, but that piece of like just recognizing how alienated our economy is from the environment and from human needs, I think that's a piece of Laudato Si that really just hasn't been realized and hasn't been like promoted or even talked about that much and nevertheless it's like there's a lot of material there so i kind of hope laudate deum will maybe drill down more into that and just continue you know underlining how important that economic piece is yeah for sure i mean um if not degrowth maybe we will get a uh, a little bit about minions backpacks and how they are bad <laughs> Um, how amazing would it be if pope francis was like i was reading an article in uh in the guardian the the guardian the other day and did you know that they're throwing out all these uh funko pops i can't believe it like you just really need some good uh silly examples in there i think i think so man uh you can't have i mean when it comes to production and consumption you can't have anything but silly examples because at at the end (laughs) of the day it's like the most absurd thing that we are willing to basically destroy our, our entire planet and also like all of us our lives over like producing more Funko Pops and it's so stupid. We're the dumbest creatures on the planet. Um, Man, you know what drives me crazy about that? Like there, so there's degrowth people. There is a, whatever they call them, productive growth people or whatever, anti degrowth people. You know, there's a lot of internet brands that you can be these days. And like, listen, I think degrowth is important, but I don't really care about the brand that much. It's fine. It's like a way of talking that does some good things and also has some problems. But uh, I saw somebody critiquing degrowth recently, um, complaining about kind of this, like, you know, the the idea that, like, we don't need all these Funko Pops. And they were like, who knows what kind of, like, trinkets and trash keys you're going to, like, the working class will want when it's liberated. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> the working class will still want Funko Pops, but, like, maybe they just shouldn't have them. And that's also pretty good. <laughs> like, it's just weird the way that, like, even people on the left will tie themselves into knots to, like, uh, not ask a hard question about like, I don't know whether or not we're willing to like actually lead lives of solidarity if it means not being able to have Funko Pops. I love the weird thought experiment, though, of being like, well, what will the liberated masses want after the revolution? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, after the revolution, we'll definitely have to have some like revolutionary commemorative pins and, uh, you know, what a Funko Pop of the great revolutionary leader. We got to have that stuff or else it's not really a revolution, is it? <laughs> the Sean Fain Funko Pop is one I would have. I'll admit it. Okay, that's fair. Um, that is an okay one, I guess. <laughs> All right, folks, you're gonna have to tune in next week when we get to the bottom of <laughs> Two Ladado Two C, um, and we'll figure out who is right about what's in it. You're gonna love it. Um, I'm gonna love it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Dean, any last minute like uh, calls from the uh, half court line about what's in this one or do you feel good about it? You feel at peace with what you've said so far? Yeah. All right. Let's see the uh, the three I said. What were they even uh, anti-war and peace migrants and refugees? Uh, something about the global south. I think those three are going to be in there. debt. I'm going to add that one. There's going to be some new stuff about debt in there. That'll be my fourth opportunity for points. I'm going to leave it at that. I won't get too greedy. So if you get even one, Matt, you'll have one. That's that's what we'll say. Okay. 
Well, and to be clear, my my, my two predictions are degrowth <laughs> and Funko Pops. So I don't know if I've got <laughs> much hope here. I think you but, had another uh, one, but I can't remember. So I guess we'll just wait for people in the Discord to tell us what it was. Yeah, well, I can't remember either. So no big deal. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. I'm going for the quickest exit to this podcast ever. Uh, you can... <laughs> Shit. Archie music is by Mario Armstrong. Sorry, Archie music is by Legend Spoon. No, I'm ending. uh... (laughs) I don't want to get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Besides, what else 